This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with more grace. Resist, if the Lord wills, warning to the rich, and patience in suffering. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. It stands at the very center of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus. But we have a tendency in big and little ways to forget, not that Jesus is raised from the dead. We know that. We believe that. We wouldn't be Christians if we denied it. But what it means right now and what it means for our future and our hope. In fact, because Jesus' future is bright, so is ours. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Joining us to talk about despair and finding hope in difficult times, Dr. Adam Kuntz. He's associate pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado, author of a column for the March issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Quiet Despair and Its Remedies. Dr. Kuntz, welcome back. Great to be with you. Thank you. How would you describe the sense of despair that permeates many Christian congregations today? Yeah, the despair comes out of a sense that there is not a future for the church. And maybe that means in the person's thinking or in the congregation's thinking, the church broadly, but it has to do more specifically with the visible decline in church attendance in most American congregations. It's not unique to our synod. It's something that affects all Christian churches in America by and large. And the sense that there won't be a future for their congregation, that not only was the past in some way better, there were more people on Sunday or more kids in Sunday school or in the confirmation class, but that it won't get better or it can't. And it's mysterious as to why or how it ever could. So they have a sense of the future closing down and probably also of in time, maybe a time they can see coming in five years their congregation closing, the doors closing, the congregation dissolving, and then what had been there and had been steady won't be there for their children or their grandchildren. Why don't we voice this despair often? Because it feels awkward to be, let's say, a little more brutally honest than maybe we usually have to be. There's going to be a difference in any group of human beings between what is said and what is sensed. And that might be a a wider difference in some groups than in others. But I think for any Christian, it feels awkward to talk clearly or specifically about a sense you might have, right or wrong, that you or the church don't have much of a future because it doesn't sound hopeful or joyful or other things that Christians have learned to associate with Christianity, and it doesn't have anything of the gospel in it. So it doesn't sound like something we should be saying. It seems like we should be endlessly hopeful or optimistic, but we may not in fact be about our own congregations. It makes it awkward to express because it's like, well, what's wrong with me (laughs) that I feel this way? Or what's wrong with my congregation? Because the non-denom church down the road, this isn't happening to them. What's the problem? So I think it's partly because of the awkwardness of talking about what it is that we might 
sense. I think it gets expressed in other ways, but I think it's awkward to express for most. Do we need to express it? I think we have to, in the same sense that when you're thinking about sin, it's always very powerful, if you just think about individual confession and absolution, to name that sin. It's powerful when you name it before God. It's very powerful when you name it before the pastor, and he and God stead forgives that sin for the sake of Christ. In the same way, when you're thinking about what is kind of lurking in the decisions we're making about the future of a congregation, its budget, can we afford a pastor, these kinds of things? Do we need to combine with another congregation? It's very powerful to say out loud, yeah, I think we do need to combine because otherwise we won't be here or something to that effect that you are able to say what people sense anyway, but you kind of have to be the first to say it very often because people feel awkward saying aloud something they may all have been thinking last Sunday when only 17 people showed up for service, or let's say 100 showed up, but it used to be that there were 400 there in the same church with increased costs. You have many fewer people. So I think when you say something aloud, it becomes very powerful in beginning to think about what else could be done, or especially how Christ will deal with these things with those 17 people, or whatever the problem or the case may be. You say that this sense of despair is often forgetfulness regarding Christ's resurrection and our refusal to acknowledge how it actually does change the future. Yeah, what I mean is that when we are considering the future, our own lives, our medical diagnoses, our death, as well as the future of any given congregation or, or some other part of the Christian church, church bodies, colleges, all kinds of stuff. If we don't realize that Jesus is alive and that's not actually part of our thinking, then what we will probably do will be to confine the gospel's impact to what needs to be said in the sermon on Sundays, which it should be there. The gospel should always be there, but it also needs to be there in our thinking about what the risen head of the church is actually doing. And in the column, one thing that I wanted to stress was the old insistence of the Lutherans on the idea that Jesus is the head of the church. <laughs> That's why I don't, by divine law, like it says in the Confessions, in the Treatise on the Power and Primacy of the Pope, I don't need another organizational head absolutely to be in charge of the church because Jesus is. And if I'm thinking about the future of my congregation and not thinking, what does Jesus say in his word he would have the church do? What does he want to see done? Is the town that I live in part of all nations to whom the gospel should be preached? All of these kinds of considerations you can draw directly and God's people can see for themselves directly in the Bible. If that's not happening, then I'm not factoring into my thinking about the future the fact that Jesus is alive. And therefore, of course, I would be despairing too, because if he is not raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. In addition to Christ being the head of the church, you say that this head, Christ, is also our hope. Explain that. Yeah, hope is presented in the church's art very often, probably most often when it's presented as a symbol, as an anchor. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to people because we use the word hope as a synonym for a wish. 
I hope it works out doesn't mean I'm sure. <laughs> it means it means maybe. What we mean when we say that Christ is our hope is that we are pinning everything on him and that hope is our anchor, like it's presented in the letter to the Hebrews, because the things of Christ are sure things. So my medical health, my congregation's future, whatever about my life is perhaps unknown to me and unsure. If I'm staking my future personally as to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, or collectively as to the church's mission, the church's work, the church's sense of what its future would even be for, no matter how well you're doing in attendance or whatever you think, when you pin that to Christ, you're saying, I'm pinning what I'm doing, I'm pinning what this church is about to sure things, not uncertain things, because his resurrection and his word always coming true, always coming to pass, means that when I think I consider him most of all, the things that are unsure, they appear in a much different light. They're not anchors, and they don't have the same weight that the anchor does. They might be winds trying to blow me around, but the anchor holds me firm, and I know what I'm about because I know him. If we're not actually practically considering the Savior as our hope, then what we are practically doing is trying to find other hopes to use, and they will all disappoint. So maybe your congregation looks great today. Doesn't mean it's going to be. Maybe your health is great today. Doesn't mean it will be in five years. Instead, you want to pin your own life, but in the column, we're talking specifically about the church, to the hope who is sure, to the anchor, and that's Christ. So if we're doing that, what we mean especially is that we do that practically, that I think, what is it that Christ is doing? Okay, He wants to have his word proclaimed to the nations. And how is my church, how is the church involved in actually doing that? Because all the things that have to do with him, those are sure. Everything else, unsure, crazy, who knows? Black swan events all over the place, perhaps. The things of Christ are always sure. What future do we have in Christ? The future that we have in Christ is very different from the present. And when the church forgets this, I think it always loses the side of itself that is most beautiful because most hopeful. There's always to any part of human life, but also to the church, an earthly side. Somebody has to keep the lights on. Somebody has to decide, does this church that has 17 people, does this stay open? When you get completely obsessed with those things of the church, it's not so much that they're unimportant as that their importance fades over time. Because the point of having a place where those 17 people come together is that they would have eternal words of life proclaimed to them. That's what the church is always doing, whether it's got a building or whether it doesn't, or whether it's got tons of members or whether it has very, very, very few. That's what the Christian church and any given Christian congregation is always doing. So when we forget that that is true, that there's something not only earthly and brutally practical to the church's life, but that the church's life is also at the same time heavenly preparation for paradise and announcement of things of eternal significance. When we forget that, 
then all the realities that are practical and foreseeable that the roof needs to be replaced or the pastor's health care has to be covered or whatever the problem is, those completely occupy our thinking. And maybe they get solved, but then maybe another problem pops up. If we always keep in mind instead that the things of Christ, which are sure, are also of everlasting significance, then ordering the other things that we're doing in our lives, in our families, in our churches, towards the promotion and the proclamation of that gospel, that becomes much easier. And it clarifies what those earthly things, what those very practical things need to be and how they need to be carried out, because the goal or the purpose of the church is clear. What I'm saying is that when we forget that he is alive and we only have a future in and through his life, and that's not really the focus of what we're doing or how we're making decisions, of course, of course, we would become despairing because all we're presented with, and certainly in our time in the United States of America, we're presented with an enormous array of problems to which we only have a few solutions and sometimes no solution at the time when we need one. If we orient instead what we're doing and what we're thinking around the fact that we are proclaiming to the world as well as to each other week by week by week, the reality of Christ's resurrection life, which is the only future you would want to have, then it's much easier to orient everything else we're doing around the proclamation and the extension of that gospel to the nations. If you would tie this to baptism, how we are literally connected to Christ's death and resurrection. Yeah. What happens in baptism is a beautiful illustration in every single Christian's life of what I just said about being at the same time earthly and heavenly. Because what happens is that this very earthly life especially in the case of a baby who's baptized, with all that lies before her in her life, all kinds of things. Who knows what's going to happen when she's 42, the day that she's baptized, you know, 10 days after she was born, whatever it was, is that Jesus is promising to her that he will be with her even to the end of the age. And I think that we generally, as the Lutheran Church, do a do a decent job of telling people that, that very, very beautiful truth, that he is with you, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. All I'm suggesting is that we realize not only that each of us individually is baptized, <laughs> but that his people are a baptized people who have promises attached to them, given to them, and joys before them because I'm struck by the fact that those who are baptized in the New Testament go through generally far greater practical challenges than the church in the United States does today, and yet have such a joyful hope about them and a great sense of ability to set priorities. Paul says, I put everything else aside for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus and being found in him. So all I really want is for him to say, you're baptized, come on in. I'm striving towards that. That's all I'm looking for. So all we're saying is all of these beautiful things that we acknowledge concerning the fact that an individual Christian is baptized, how Jesus has promised to be with him, 
how he will see him through things, how he will see him to eternal life. That this is also true for Christ's church, for his bride, whom he promises to present spotless and without the least blemish or stain at the end of time. Dr. Adam Kuntz is our guest. Finding hope in difficult times is our topic. You're connected to issues, etc. Dr. Kuntz has written a column for the March issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Quiet, Despair, and Its Remedies. The Lutheran Witness interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective. You can receive an annual digital and print subscription for less than $25. Learn more at cph.org witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the Lutheran Witness magazine. When we come back, he says that despair is not our master. We'll get Dr. Kuhn's explanation next. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our faux stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Adam Kuntz is our guest. We're talking about finding hope in times of difficulty. Dr. Kuntz, you say that despair is not our master. Explain that. Yeah, this is a practical application of, let's say, especially the first commandment, that when we are tempted, especially to despair, which is this sense, probably especially in the church, that the future is closed, or that the future is endless, measurable decline, or something, right? It's just, it's bad, it's dark, it's cloudy. When that happens we are being tempted to make despair the governor of everything. He will be in charge and he will say what's what and he will decide what happens. So that then not only our sense of things inside of ourselves, but even our actions and our words begin to be governed by the prospect or the reality of our despair. Instead, 
when we say that Jesus is Lord, we also mean, and the Augsburg Confession talks about this in terms of the new man, singular, but we're speaking also about the church as a bunch of new men whom the Spirit has gathered, that he creates in us also new fear, love, and trust in God, new attitudes, new motions of the heart, he says, Melanchthon says in the Apology, that would cause us to be motivated, moved, governed by this risen Lord rather than despair, which didn't rise from the dead for us and doesn't have anything to offer us the way that the risen Jesus, who's conquered everything, has everything to offer us and to give us in his own good time. So when the congregation does come to that point where the doors are going to close, how does this come into play? This comes into play because, first of all, that congregation needs to have, as they always did, but especially at that time, they need to have the gospel preached to them. And the gospel has never been that Jesus said in the Bible he needs that building in that place to accomplish his purpose of having the gospel of everlasting life and resurrection proclaimed to every creature. The gospel was always concerning him, his person, his work, his blood atonement for sin, his resurrection on the third day, just as he promised. That's always been the gospel. And on the day the doors closed, that's still the gospel. And he still wants it preached to that community, however few or many may be there. They need to hear that gospel too. That congregation needs to hear that gospel too. In addition to which they need to hear, he has not given up on you. He may have given up on this building that the 17 of you can no longer maintain. That's okay. He has not given up on you because his goal is not that any should perish, but that all should repent and live. And that's true for those 17 people and for everybody around that church building. And if it's distinct from where they live, everybody near where they live too. So even when the doors are closing, they need to realize Jesus is still alive. Jesus doesn't die when the church doors get closed or when the church is sold off, when the deed changes hands. Jesus isn't somehow dead now. He still wants his gospel preached to the nations. That's his desire. That's also his desire for them. If we don't know that, then we can't see closure as anything other than death. Instead, I think we should think about closure as just the Lord moving his forces in a different configuration, the way a general might say, I need these guys over here now. That's fine. That's fine. There's a bigger plan at work here, and there are much bigger purposes than just, well, we were used to being over in this part of the battlefield. Well, now you're over here. What about the recriminations that would follow in that kind of situation where people, they want to maybe armchair quarterback the situation? Had we done this? Had we done that? Have we implemented this program or changed the way we worship or something like that? Yeah, armchair quarterbacking, of course, is the absolute easiest thing to do in any set of human difficulties. <laughs> we always know more about what we should have done in hindsight, and we especially know more about what other people should have done in hindsight than we do about our own sin, for example. The speck is so much easier to see than the log in our own eye. So that is, of course, going to happen. It doesn't mean that it's actually productive. Because the simple reality of the church is that it lives through and because of the proclamation of God's word. So if you want to say, well, if we had had a, a nicer breakfast spread after services, more people probably would have stayed and joined. 
I don't know. Do you want them to stay for the Danishes? I mean, is that actually something that you want? I would prefer if they stayed for the word of God, if they stayed for some repentance and forgiveness in an old-fashioned way, that would be best. So the thing to realize here is that not only is Monday morning quarterbacking or, or armchair quarterbacking, even on Sunday morning, not only is that way too easy, it's way too easy, but it also doesn't actually answer the need that is there in every sinner, whoever he is, however far he lives from this church that is closing or about to close, the need he has is not for nicer danishes or for smoke machines in the service. He needs the word of God preached to him. That's what he needs. And so when the church can focus on that and realize that that's what Jesus actually wants the church to do, rather than worry so much about danishes or smoke machines, then we're all much clearer, both for today, however long any given congregation may be there doing that, but also for eternity, because until he returns, that's the church's mission, however many or wherever her congregations are found. When the congregation gives in this despair, that's the danger. What about the danger of kind of the opposite? We've been here forever and we'll always be here. Yeah. Isn't it so great how this always happens that pride and despair, usually they're like two twins who hate each other, but they're always at the same family reunion is that you find in the same, maybe even in the same congregation with all the same outward conditions, both despair about the congregation in one person and pride in another person who thinks we're always going to be here, which is sort of the same <laughs> forgetfulness of God's truth that the Pharisees are engaged in when they claim that they've never been enslaved to anybody, thereby forgetting the whole book of Exodus, for example. So what happens with pride is that pride also has the same blindness concerning the resurrected Lord that despair does. And this happens also inside the individual soul as it does in the church when the church is tempted to these things together. If there's despair, I'm forgetting he's risen. He has his own life and I'm headed for life. And in him, men rise from the dead. In pride, I think the church is actually mostly about the church. <laughs> it's not really about Christ. And so I don't really need to worry about what he's going to do or if we need to actually proclaim the gospel to our neighbors who are around the church or whatever the problem may be, because we're always going to be here. He needs us. And this is a very silly thing for any Christian to say, but pride is, is the church saying to Jesus, we are the vine you are the branch. <laughs> and it's it's exactly the other way around in anyone's life as it is in the church's life. He is the vine. And according to the growth and the life and the beauty that are in him, we are the branches. And we grow through him and in him, rooted and renewed in him. He doesn't need us. We need him desperately and always. For some reason, and I think it's probably has way more to do with 20th century and 21st century Lutheranism than historic Lutheranism. This notion of Christ being the head of the church, that Christ is Lord, that essentially Christ is in control, uh, not only of temporal things, but of all matters, spiritual and churchly. It's been a little eschewed by 20th and 21st century Lutherans. Why do you think that is? And why, as you said at the very beginning, do we need to recapture this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot about that, to be honest with you, just the names of churches that were often given in the mid-20th century when there was a lot of expansion and then not so much, and 
nowadays and, and many fewer new churches that we're starting. I think a lot about these kinds of things. I believe that has to do mostly with the idea that somehow if something and I'm not being glib, if something sounds law-like, or you could even say law-y, the way <laughs> the kids say judge-y instead of judgmental, if it sounds law-y, like Jesus is in control, I actually think that's beautiful gospel under most circumstances for most applications of God's word. That is beautiful gospel. Jesus is in control. But if it sounds law-y or like he is ruling or something, we're kind of scared of it. And I think that the source of that ultimately, not to just speak about various historical things, the source of that ultimately is biblical ignorance. When we are ignorant of the Bible, and especially how the Testaments, which witness to the same triune God, relate to each other and proclaim who he is and his control over all things for the good of his body, the church, that's in the New Testament right there. When we don't know that, then we can fashion a God who forgives our sins, but is not in control somehow, or who at the same time would love us enough to give us Holy Communion, but at the same time, he is not very worried about and doesn't care about the suffering of his bride in any given place. I think that's silly, and I think it's sub-biblical. So I would trace this ultimately in a theological way to biblical ignorance, And the more we know of his word, the more we come to trust that he who is alive is actually in control. And that is fantastic news. Finally, how would you respond to a listener who says, Dr. Kuntz, I know what you've been saying here for the last half hour, but it sure looks like Satan is winning nowadays. (laughs) Yeah. First of all, I I would say just based on appearances, I agree with you. But I don't judge what needs to happen or what I should be doing in the church in my own vocation according to appearances. Because if you read the Bible, you know better than to judge by what you see. So when you're walking by faith, not by sight, that also means that you are walking according to the rule that you say, Jesus is still king, he's still Lord, he's over all things, and therefore I will proclaim his gospel to the nations. Whether I think or I've projected according to statistical measurements, they're going to listen or not. And maybe I'll get Jeremiah-type results and nobody particularly will listen in my time. And maybe I will get proclamation in Jerusalem early on and Acts-type results and lots of people will listen. That's totally up to him. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live and I'm going to work in his vineyard according to his word and his promises and not according to what my eyes see. Dr. Adam Kuntz is Associate Pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado, author of a column for the March issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Quiet Despair and Its Remedies. Dr. Kuntz, thank you. Hey, thank you so much. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Will Whedon about Jesus and Beelzebul and the return of an unclean spirit in Luke chapter 11 and its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234, Box 83, 
Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.